So we're going to have a look at the parable of the, the vineyard and we're going to take it from, from Luke 20. Luke 20, let's just read it then from verse 9. Jesus began to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and let it out to husbandmen and went into another country for a long time. And at the season he sent unto the husbandmen a servant that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent yet another servant, and him also they beat, and handled him shamefully, and sent him away empty. He sent yet a third, and him also they wounded, and cast him forth. And the Lord of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him. But when the husbandman saw him, they reasoned one with another, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And they cast him forth out of the vineyard, and killed him. What therefore will the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? In the other Gospels it says that the audience say, He will come and destroy these husbandmen, and will give the vineyard unto others. When they heard it, they said, God forbid. But he looked upon them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, that's Jesus, the same was made the head of the corner. Everyone that falleth on that stone shall be broken to pieces, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will scatter him as dust. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him in that very hour, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he spake this parable against them. So then, this parable is very clearly based around uh, a song that we have in Isaiah 5, where God says that he has planted Israel as a, a beautiful vineyard, and he built a wall around it, and he built a tower, made a winepress. He did absolutely everything that could have been done so that this vineyard could produce very good wine, and uh, it was the, the, best, the best vineyard. He says in Isaiah 5 verse 4, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. That is, the, the uh, workers in the vineyard didn't even bother doing anything. They didn't care for it. It just went wild. And, uh... So then, God set up, if you like, Israel so that they could bring forth fruit to him. And he sent the servants, his servants, the prophets, at the season, that is, at the harvest, to get the fruit of the vineyard. First point. God has set up our situation so that we can give fruit to him. Because at the end of it, the vineyard is taken away from these husbandmen, that is the, the Jews, and is given to other people who will give the fruit in its season. And that is us. So then, this wonderful vineyard that's been absolutely perfectly designed by God so that it brings forth the best fruit and so that it makes lovely wine, this has been given to us. We very often feel that we don't have the right circumstances with which we can bring forth spiritual fruit. We think, for example, a very primitive, uh, simple example, if only I had a really nice house or apartment I could entertain God's people, I could have people stay with me, I could do so much for the Lord. If only I had some more cash, I could help the poor people, I could do this, I could do that. If only I could speak Chinese, I could go and preach in China. 
if only I had this, that or the other, I could do this, that, the other for God and bring forth fruit to his glory. And so you find people will say, okay, well I will take a second job or I will take a very demanding job so that I might have the ability to do this, that, the other for God. And this is very common. I will do this for the world in my secular life and put all my energy into this, that and the other so that I can have something with which I can bring forth fruit to God. No. We right now have got everything that we need and God has gone to this great uh, effort and expense to, to make the vineyard exactly what is required to bring forth fruit. There is no excuse. And you need to think about that very personally in the context of your own life. But there's no good thinking, if only I had this or if only I bought that or if only I was in this situation, I could uh, be so much more fruitful for God. God has given us the ability and everything, actually, to bring forth fruit for him. But what is the fruit? Well, the servants were sent at the harvest time to get the fruit. And uh, we said that this is talking about God's servants, the prophets whom Israel rejected. But what was their message when all those prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, when all these guys came to Israel, what was their message? In very simple terms, their message was very critical of Israel and asking them to repent. So then the fruit that is being asked for is repentance. That actually is what God is looking for. Far more than what we think we might physically, if you like, do for God. So, as I have said a number of times, and I will say again, a guy standing at a bus stop, smitten in his conscience that I said the wrong thing to my wife, to my kids, to the guys I work with, or that woman on the bus, or that lady next door, who repents to God and asks God intensely for God's forgiveness and confesses his sin, that thrills God. That is the fruit. Far more than the person who maybe thinks, well, now I've got uh, whatever uh, money or whatever I can go and give to the poor, I can go and do this, do that, whatever great thing for God. So the fruit that God looks for above anything else is repentance. Bring forth fruit appropriate to repentance. That is the message of both John the Baptist and of Jesus. So then, repentance. A conviction of sin and the feeling and the knowledge of, of forgiveness from God. That is the basis upon which we go out and do whatever we do for, for God. That is what will bring forth fruit. And even humanly, when you look, as inevitably one does, at uh, the service of our brothers and sisters, some people do seem to be extremely fruitful. And I think in every one of those cases, they have a deep conviction of their sin. Now, I don't mean that the person who was an alcoholic or a drug addict or, or whatever, or a prostitute even, or, or whatever, who, who uh, repents of all that, is therefore more strongly motivated than the person who is in the eyes of the world, a lesser sinner. Not at all. It all comes down to perception, because sin in that sense is sin. The people who perceive their sinfulness and feel God's forgiveness, whether it was a hard word to, uh, 
to your neighbour <coughs> or a hard thought to somebody as you travel to work or come home from work or whatever, th- th- that is sin as much as a lifetime of drug abuse is sinful and, and all, that, uh, all that may go with it. So then, this is the fruit that God seeks. Okay, this man who plants the vineyard and goes away to a far country for a long time, this is God. It's not Jesus, because this person decides to send eventually their beloved son. This is clearly God sending Jesus uh, to to the Jews. So what do we make of this thing in verse 9, that he goes into a far country for a long time? He sort of goes away. He's an absentee landlord, which was quite a a common thing in, in first century Palestine. Well, I, it may just simply be the furniture of, of the parable, but I wonder if it's really God indicating that he realises that in Old Testament times he was sort of visibly manifest in the tabernacle, in the temple, he, did, he openly intervened in human life on earth, miracles, etc., but he is now not so actively visible. The miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit have been taken away. We walk by faith and not by sight. That does not mean that God is not watching. And I, I think he symbolizes this here, or Jesus does, in terms of God being like an absentee landlord, that he's gone away and he's not there, apparently, looking at us, although of course he is but he's not visibly, actively around. There is an apparent distance that God puts between God and man, and that is, I suppose, appropriate. But that apparent distance, like the apparent silence of God, is what confuses so many people and and causes crises of, of faith in people. And it's rather similar to how Jesus was with the disciples in the boat and the boat was overwhelmed with water and started to sink and they were about to drown and it says that Jesus was sleeping well considering that the boats would not have been that big um, nothing more really I guess than a fishing boat how how was Jesus asleep with water pouring into the boat etc, a lot of noise shouting, panic, how was he asleep I wonder if he really was asleep or whether he simply acted that way And why did he do that? Because he wanted to elicit from the disciples the desperate appeal, save us, do something. And that, I think, is is one of the reasons for the apparent distance of God, the apparent silence of God. If he did it any other way, then it would all be too easy, as it were. Faith would not really be faith. It would be like, oh yeah, well, a slight problem, let's get hold of God and get on the phone sort of thing and let's sort this one out. The more you think about it, there has to be this apparent silence and this apparent distance, this apparently God being apparently an absentee landlord who has gone away for a long time. Now, there is... uh, a, a, a problem possibly or certainly a, a stimulating uh, item in the parable that every time that the servant is sent it is harvest time it is the season when the fruit is expected and it seems to me that God's purpose is structured in such a way that 
God can, if he wants, uh, bring it about, could have brought it about, that Jesus could have come, or, or, or his kingdom could have come at multiple different points in time in the past. It could have been that Solomon did become the Messiah King and fulfilled the promises to David and to Samuel 7, but Solomon messed up and so it didn't happen. It could have been when Israel returned from captivity in Babylon that they did re-establish God's kingdom. And I, I take the description of the temple in Ezekiel 40-48 to, to be commandment rather than prediction. That is, this was what chapter 43, I think, about verse 12, calls the law of the house. This was a commandment of how they should build. But Israel would not. And most of them didn't even bother coming back from captivity. And so all those wonderful passages in Isaiah, later Isaiah and certainly the other prophets, that talk about this sort of idyllic kingdom of God-like situation on earth, that all could have been fulfilled by the returning captives, but they didn't. And there's a number of sort of cases like this. I mean, if Israel had accepted Jesus instead of crucifying him, I mean, what would have happened? John the Baptist's ministry, if it had been ultimately successful and he had prepared the whole of Israel for Messiah and they had accepted him, then, you know, those prophecies of Isaiah 40 about John preparing the way, and Messiah coming, the kingdom being established, presumably that would have happened. But then you say, yeah, what about all the predictions in the Bible that Messiah was going to suffer, be rejected of the Jews, killed, resurrected, etc.? And, yeah, okay, we, we are struggling to, uh, we're at the very limit, I suppose, of, of the possibility of human understanding in all this. Uh, and ultimately, I don't know. I don't know uh, why that is the case. But I think it shows that God's purpose is to some degree open-ended. And if one set of situations or circumstance doesn't work out, well, he tries another one. And his whole history of dealing with Israel is an example of that. And God does that in our lives. God sets up amazing potentials. Maybe there are people in your immediate neighbourhood, your neighbours, your co-workers, maybe your family, people that you meet, who maybe potentially could come to the Lord Jesus because of you. But you and I are shy. Or we think, nah, 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 it's... This guy's not interested. Well, no, I, I can't. Or, well, I should do, but no, I, I can't make the witness. Or, well, there's not been a good opportunity, etc. And I think we need to pray every day that we will somehow grasp the, the metal, that we will grasp the potentials that God has set up. Because every day God has set up these potentials for us. And one of the tragic things about God is that he knows what might have been. He knows what might have been. Uh, and that is, thinking about it, I suppose, that is why we are sad. Why do we weep? Why, why do we feel so sad when, for example, a young person dies? Because we think what might have been, this could have been. He might have done this. She could have become that. And it's all so tragic. And in that sense, the whole thing for God must be so tragic. I mean, he knows all the possible endings, all the possible paths that could have, could have been taken by people. And it's so tragic that he's seen billions of people not do what they could have done. 
uh, it's rather like a sort of a chess computer that's sort of you know how those things are programmed they, they simply go through every possible combination of possible moves that, that could now be taken and they take from any given situation they sort of run through to the end of at the end of the game how it all possibly could work out and in a far huger scale God, God is the same God, God is far greater of course than, than, that, than that and so he knows that for example as Jesus said if the miracles that Jesus had done in first century Israel had been done in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes he knew that so he knows, I mean, God knows trillions of possible futures. And from that sense, it must be so sad for him. And yet, he must be so thrilled when we, with all our dysfunction, laziness, and all the things that hold us back, we at least try to respond to some of his prods and live up to some of those potentials that he's made possible. There's an, another element of unreality, as I've said before. Nearly, <clears throat> nearly all the parables seem to function around the idea that this is a familiar story, but within, or an imaginable scene, let's say, but within that imaginable scene that is so true to life, there is something that sticks out, that's not so real. One of the things in this story is the fact that, okay, he sends one servant, and then he sends another and another and another. He keeps on and on. And then he thinks, I'll send my son. Surely they'll reverence him. Look, I mean, who would do this? Nobody else would do that. This is the person who is absolutely a fanatic almost that he so wants fruit out of those people. And that element of unreality teaches us that God so passionately sought for fruit, for response from those people. To, to the point of, of being, humanly speaking, irresponsible. To, to the point of being obsessed almost with it. Also, I wonder, in verse 10, he asks that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But he's a long way away. He's in a far country. Does he really expect that these servants are going to take a little bit of the fruit of this vineyard that he's built uh, and bring it back to him? surely he would expect rather that they might bring him some of the wine from the vineyard or they might bring him uh, money that was normally how these, these tenant farmers operated with an absentee landlord that they paid some sort of rent every year when the harvest had been, been sold but he wants fruit and all the uh, records of this parable say the same and I, I may be going too far and uh, you know, it's easy to overinterpret these things but I, I wonder if that emphasis on fruit rather than money is, that, is because this is another element of unreality that this owner just so loved that vineyard because he built it, you know, he'd been there it was his own, very own property he just so wanted to see some fruit even though by the time it was brought back to him it would have been you know, totally lost and gone off and all that. And if that's right, if I'm on the right track and, and not just over-interpreting, 
The point of that element of unreality would be how God is desperate for fruit. Not for our money, not for our works, not for having, not for turning the grapes into wine as it were, but he just wants fruit. He wants at least something, even if it's mouldy and and not very good, but just think, yeah, well, that's from there, that's them. They did something with that great big uh, vineyard that I built for them and everything I did for them, they've given me at least something. Wow, at least something's happening there. It's rather like the one talent man in the parable, in the other parable, that the Lord will say to him on the last day, look, why didn't you at least put my money into the bank so that I could have got some interest? Even though lending money on interest to your fellow Jew was illegal. It was against the law of Moses. It's as if the Lord will be saying to people, look, if you'd done at least something, I would have been happy, but you did nothing. Isaiah 5 said that, This vineyard became overgrown and produced wild grapes and they didn't even do anything with it. So God wants at least something. He wants some concrete action. And here we are hearing words on one level. Words, reading words, hearing them. But in the end God wants action. Something concrete from us. And we need a resolve. What can I do? Even if it's moldy old grapes. But, okay, I must do at least something. I want to do at least something. And that fruit, as we've said, is repentance. So we're sitting here thinking, well, okay, what can I offer to God? What can you offer? Repent of something. That shouldn't be difficult for any of us here. What can I change? What fruit can I bring forward? And another element of unreality is how unreasonable these husbandmen were. I mean, why beat up these servants? Why not just tell them that now we don't have anything clear off? Why be so viciously aggressive? You know, the the picture is of this unusually gracious landlord, this very, very passionate landlord who passionately wants at least some fruit, and yet these husbandmen are very unreasonable and inexplicably aggressive. And this is the tragedy of God's relationship with Israel and, in a sense, with uh, with humanity. And so he says, what shall I do? Verse 13, and that, I think, is God's desperation. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. This is clearly God sending Jesus to Israel. It may be, and the Greek really implies... I'm sure that, surely they will reverence my son when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they said, this is the heir, let's kill him. Now that is so similar to the story of Joseph. That he comes, the beloved son, to, to Israel, as it were, to Jacob's children, the men who would become the, the founders of, of Israel, and they say, this is him. They see him coming from afar off. Let's kill him. Uh, so clearly this is talking about the Lord Jesus. But you know, we really do have a problem here, don't we? The God who knew ahead of time what was going to happen, why does he talk like this? And further, when he says, I will send my beloved son, it may be, or surely they will, reverence him when they see him, This is actually pretty well quoting from the Septuagint of Isaiah 53, verse 2, the well-known prophecy about the uh, crucifixion of of Jesus and his rejection by Israel. Isaiah 53, verse 2, it's prophesied about uh, Jesus. 
When we, that is Israel, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And they reject him, despise him, and kill him. God had inspired that. But when Israel saw his son, they would despise him just like they did the prophets, beat him, smite him, oppress him, and kill him. But here he says, when they see him, surely they will reverence him. Now, this is a problem of, of, to me anyway, quite significant magnitude. And, you know, we are on the very edge of where human beings can go because we are trying to understand the mind of God. But the fact that we are given these two scriptures to put together in our little minds, I suppose God wants us to reflect. So here's my take on this. And I, I would be really interested in what, how anyone else can possibly think of of putting this together, God's foreknowledge versus his uh, shock, hurt, pain, hopefulness that Israel began to accept Jesus. And it's like this. God is omnipotent. That is, he can do anything. But he chooses not to. For example, there are conditions to salvation. For example, God wants his will to be done on earth, but it is not always done because people don't do what God wants. Now, God could make them do it. He could just make it all happen in a, in a nanosecond. But he doesn't. So, we could say he limits his omnipotence. Now, if God is prepared to limit his om- omnipotence, you know, Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. If there's limitation on God's omnipotence by the limitations of our faith, what about God's omniscience, that is his ability to know all things? Of course God can know absolutely everything. But don't you think that maybe he limits that omniscience? This is like, I suppose, someone who's in a very strong position entering into a relationship with someone who is not. This is like a sighted person marrying someone who is blind. This is like a Bill Gates of this world with wealth, intelligence, fame, marrying a dirt poor person from a a jungle somewhere. Bill is going to have to get down onto their level and he's going to have to see life through their eyes. It's rather like when you talk to children. Just imagine, a little, little child there on the, uh, on the floor, and you're going to talk to them. What do you do? Standing up, do you stand up and, and look down at them and talk to them? Or do you crouch down and get your head as close to their head, or I mean on the same level as their head as you can, and you talk to them in their terms? Do you always tell that child the total truth when they ask a childish question? No, not always. You talk to them in terms that they can understand and you try to get genuinely on their level and perceive things as they do. If you want a relationship with that child, of course you can stand above them and talk down to them and and you won't get anywhere. Now, to some extent, God has done this. God is in covenant relationship with us and let's not forget the wonder of that. That when we were baptised we entered into a covenant with him. And it's not only that that we have certain obligations to him, but he has willingly entered into obligation to us. 
and I, I know this, this beggar's belief but God wants to be in meaningful relationship with you and with me the God who is so far away in you know, distance, understanding, everything he wants you and wants me and it's just impossible really to fully believe this so impossible that the explanation that I'm giving of all this you might think and I think as well like yeah maybe Duncan maybe it's better explanation yeah maybe that is but maybe also our difficulty in accepting this explanation is because it's so hard to believe that God Almighty Yahweh God of Israel the, the God of this cosmos and of all existence wants a relationship with a fellow who wears glasses called Duncan Easter or whoever you are you know it's like almost too too impossible to believe and because of that he in his self-revelation to us in the Bible will appear to be in one sense contradictory not that he is ultimately but because he so wants to enter into things from our point of view that's why the God who on one level knows the end from the beginning can feel shock hurt, anger surprise almost at human behaviour and also joy all those emotions that are revealed to us of God in the Bible occur at the moment of human behaviour somebody sins God is hurt, angry, upset somebody is righteous, angels of heaven rejoice somebody, you know, one sinner that repents and there's a party in heaven well, you know, if God sort of uh, knew all this, in what sense is there that thrill in God and human behaviour? And I can only suggest that because God brings himself so fully onto our, <clears throat> onto our level, that he therefore has those feelings legitimately. This is like the person who kneels down and gets their head absolutely on the level of the child's head and talks to the child and actually can somehow stop being an adult and fully enter into that child's feelings, perceptions, worldview, conceptions of things, limitations. Now we can't do that. Or we kneel down and talk to the child, but, but we're still adults and we know that, well, I'm just saying this, but in my heart I, I'm an adult and I, I know, you know more than this child does. But, but God has to such extent sought to become one with, with us that he maybe can be in that position, that he knows, for example, he knew on one level what would happen to Jesus, Isaiah 53 makes that clear when Israel see him they will reject him but actually he in desperation sent his beloved son thinking surely they will reverence my son now you know there's the element of unreality who would, who would do that when all your other servants have been beat up you wouldn't send your beloved son and you wouldn't be so hopeful that ah yeah well they'll reverence him this is love gone crazy this is love in the world, they would say, ah, this is, you know, love that's just naive, blind. Love is blind. Well, God's not blind, but he is love. And this would explain, or begin to explain, shall I say, a few other difficulties which one encounters as they read the Bible. 
One is Jesus and Judas. It's clear that Jesus knew from the beginning who should betray him. He knew this. He knew, surely, that Judas was stealing money out of the, out of the box. He, he knew this. He was highly perceptive. He knew this. Um, and yet, according to the Psalms that prophesy uh, the feelings of Jesus about Judas, he's so gutted that Judas could betray him because he says, you know, this is my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. It was not an enemy who did this to me. It was my familiar friend. We ate bread together and he lifted up his heel against me. Now, how do, how do we square this? Well, on one level, Jesus knew. On another level, he chose not to know to such an extent that it was so terribly painful for him when it, when it happened. Moving away from God and Jesus to human beings. Samson and Delilah, and I hate reading that record, um, because you think, oh, Samson, don't you see what she's going to do? You know, she's getting nearer and nearer to your secret about uh, your hair. Uh, every time you, you trust her, can't you see what she's going to do? Do you think Samson knew on one level what she was going to do? Of course he did. When, you know, finally she says the Philistines are upon you and they put his eyes out and all that, uh, when she cuts his hair off, I, I mean, was that a surprise? Well, I don't think so. I think he knew on one level. And you see this in human relationships. Why does she marry that guy? Can't she see that he's alcoholic, he's a womanizer, he's this, that, the other? Can she see that good, honest girl who marries that, that bad fella? Yeah, of course she does. On one level. But love, yeah, you could say cynically love is blind, but I, I think love is Love is love. And in that sense, she, on one level, genuinely is persuaded that it won't work out like that with her. That she has her dreams for him, that he will be faithful to her, love her, will quit drinking, etc., etc. Now, we are made in the image of God. And whatever is so of human beings... Uh, apart from sin, of course, uh, is in some, some distant way a reflection of the, the nature of God. And we are not rational creatures. We live under the impression, the, the myth of rationality, that I only cross the road when, I, when there's no cars coming. Therefore, I am a rational person. Therefore, I'm a sensible guy, just all the others that are. The, the problem that are loonies and idiots and stupid and all the rest of it. But not so. Actually, we are not very rational people. Just a bit of self-examination will, 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 will uh, reveal that to you. And so we live under the, the illusion of rationality. And we are made in the image of God. So then, the point of all this is it's not just an expositional kind of uh, knot that we have to try to untie or understand. The point is that God is so identified with us that he can say, surely they will reverence my son. He has such hope with us. And there we are in our weakness feeling that I am alone. God has gone into a far country and he's not around. Not at all. He is so connected with us. He so wants to see things through our eyes 
and he feels with you in your feelings and to, as it were, enhance his ability to do that he thought out this wonderful way of salvation for us through him having a son who would be 100% our representative and yet also 100% God's representative to us. So then, they say, this is the heir, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. Now you have to think through that a little bit. How come they would get the inheritance by killing the son? It could imply that they thought that actually the landowner was dead, but then I don't know how they should get the inheritance. Surely it should go to his next of kin, not to them. The only other option, I suppose, is that they actually were not only tenant farmers, they were his children. But the son that was sent was the firstborn and therefore the heir. Now, I mean, that's very similar to the whole pattern of Joseph going to his brothers because we said this whole thing about, hey, this is the heir, let's kill him. They see him coming. This is so taken out of the story of Joseph. And Joseph was going to whom? He was going to his own brothers, just as Jesus came to to the Jews. And yet, also, working this one through, okay, so they kill the son the eldest son, the heir, how come they get the inheritance? Because the father's still alive. In their minds, to kill the son was to kill the father, even their own father. And, of course, Jesus was not God. God is not one and the same person as Jesus. But, in the death of Jesus, God suffered, shall we say. God was in Christ. Paul says, reconciling this world unto himself. And so, what was done to Jesus was in that sense done to God. All that he suffered, particularly in his death, was in a sense suffered by God. Uh, This is a profound mystery. But on a human level, on a simple level, what does it show us? It shows us that We are not alone in our sufferings, in our feelings, even in our death. And in our deaths in non-literal ways as well. God is there with us. Man is not alone. You are not alone and I am not alone. But God is with us. Emmanuel. And how is he with us? In Emmanuel. In his son. So then, Jesus says... What therefore will the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? And in the other Gospels, not Luke, but the others, it says that the audience say, well, he will come and destroy those husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. This seems to be talking about AD 70. God came, as it were, in the head of the, through the, uh, through the Roman armies, destroyed the temple, and the vineyard was given to others who would bring forth the fruit. Now, they said that. And that is what happened. And so, the terms of judgment that came upon Israel were actually decided by themselves. And we can be tempted to think that God is is a hard man, and, you know, judging, condemning people, etc. But actually, the only people who are going to be condemned are those who condemn themselves. And the process of condemnation will really be God, as it were, 
bringing their condemnation upon their own heads, what they themselves have asked for. In Matthew 21, verse 41, in the parallel, parallel record, it said that he will miserably destroy those miserable men, the RV says. And that's right. That's picking up a wordplay there in the Greek. He will miserably destroy those miserable men. The misery of their destruction is because they themselves are miserable. So then, God is not a hard man. God is not lashing out in anger, as pagan deities were, to, to punish people because he got angry with them. The process of judgment is really bringing upon people what they themselves have wanted. It's like in another parable, the different people will make excuses about why they can't come to the marriage feast, which is, the, um, which is a symbol of the, the kingdom of God. And they say to those who come to invite them, to, the, to bring them to the marriage supper, they say, I pray you, have me excused. I've bought some land. I got married. I can't come. Please have me excused. And that word translated excuse, that Greek word, is the same word translated rejected. Please reject me. They didn't want to be there, so they will not be there. We all, because we are human, worry about rejection. We worry about the weight of our own sin. We worry about condemnation. We worry about that day when we shall meet Jesus. We shouldn't, because his love is enough for us. We will be saved, and dare I say it, we are saved. We are redeemed in Christ. We are saved from destruction. We are saved from condemnation in him. But be that as it may, because we're weak, no matter if you're like me even, and you keep on about this as your great theme of your preaching, thinking, self-perception, that I will be saved, I am saved, I will be there. All the same, you, you still at times have that fear of the future. Uh, and the weight of your own sin, as it has been, uh, whatever, the things you have done, and the things you have not done, not been, not achieved in your character, worry you. That, that's quite normal. But let's remember that the only people who will not be there are those who have said, please reject me. I don't want to be there. I'm a miserable person. Okay, he will miserably destroy those miserable people. It's like the Jews saying, well, he should come and destroy those husbandmen and give the vineyard unto others. All right, that's what you think, so that's what happened. Now, do we want to be in the kingdom? Yes, we do. 2 Timothy 4, all those that love his appearing will be saved. And so this is the, the comfort, this is the encouragement. We then, waiting as we are for that wonderful day to come, and we talked a lot about judgment, but don't get me wrong, Jesus is eager to come, to come back, to marry us, to be with us, it's not a you know, touch-and-go situation, an indifferent judge, not at all. This is only metaphor. He desperately wants to, to be with us. But until then, we've been given this vineyard that God has done everything for. We are the others of verse 16. I will give the vineyard unto others. Matthew 21:41 says, To others who will give or render the fruits in their season. We will give back, that's the Greek word there, render, we will give back to God what 
he has given to us. Rather similar to the parable in Luke 12 of the rich fool, that his soul, his life, will be required of him. Same idea. He will have to give it back. So then there will come a day of rendering, of requiring. But what is going to be required? Well, we started off by saying that these prophets, the servants, the prophets of God, who came to Israel seeking fruit, they came with a message of repentance, and what they wanted to go away with, back to God with, was repentance. That's what they wanted. So what's the fruit that is required? Repentance. That's what really he's looking for. And what is repentance? Well, metanoia, this Greek word translated repentance, it really means a change of mind, a change of heart. That's what God wants. And I believe that there's no one with a genuine conscience and genuine humility here who would doubt for one moment that we are repentant. That even if practically we can't always work it out, in our hearts, yes, I repent, I change in my heart, I do not wish to do that, I do not identify with myself when I fail and do this, that or the other, as Paul says in Romans 7. That is the fruit that God wants. And I honestly believe that we here truly have got that fruit in our hearts, in our hands, eager to give it to God in the last day when Jesus comes back to the earth.